Hello, and welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're coming at you today with another pre-recorded episode by our socially distanced team. Uh, Today is Sunday, April 5th, and this episode was mostly recorded on Friday the 3rd and put together yesterday on Saturday, April 4th. Uh, I am host Emily Scott, here to let you know that we're trying out another way of doing the show this weekend since we're still trying to figure out the best way to keep the show going under these new conditions. Members of the team recorded their pieces separately. And they sent them to me to be pieced together for today's show. Um, So you'll hear them introducing themselves throughout this episode before they dive into their own stories um, that they put together for this week. Uh, So it means we're going to forego discussions this week as a group. Um, We thought that was maybe the best way to preserve audio quality. Um, If you feel strongly about that, feel free to reach out to us on our Objection to the Rule Facebook page. So I'm actually up first uh, with an interview I was lucky enough to do with Emily Gallagher, a really amazing person running for New York State Assembly. Uh, And yes, it is an Emily interviewing an Emily. (laughs) Um, A couple of notes on what you're about to hear. Uh, So some of my originally recorded audio was sort of glitchy. Again, it was a remote interview, um, still figuring out the, you know, how to make that work best. I don't have professional Wi-Fi, unfortunately, that sort of thing. Um, So I had to re-record some of my own audio later on at home. Um, So the way I sound might change a little bit here and there. So apologies for that. Um, And towards the end of the interview, the overall audio for everyone got pretty rough. Um, So I had to cut out more than I would have liked to. But um, I kind of explain that as you hear it as the interview plays out. Um, all right. So without further ado, here is that interview with Emily Gallagher. Enjoy. Hi, Emily Gallagher. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today for Objection to the Rule. Uh, first of all, how are you doing in our strange new world? Oh, you know, it, it's it's been interesting. I feel that I've I've adjusted to a certain extent to not leaving my apartment. Uh, which is a really weird thing to get used to. <laughs> but, you know, it's getting easier as time goes on, even though the news is getting scarier and scarier every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really troubling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it feels like things are starting to close in a little bit in New York. So I'm excited to have you on the show today, specifically because, besides being pretty awesome, because I heard your interview with Radio Free Brooklyn's Lisa Levy, um, you're also running for New York State Assembly. And I would love if you would share for our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you're running for office. Sure. So I am a a resident of Greenpoint, and I've been here since 2006. When I arrived in Greenpoint, I very quickly got involved in, at first, environmental activism. And I started to see all of the intersectionality between uh, the environment, housing, labor, uh, racial disparities, all of these different issues are all connected. And after years of advocacy, I've really come to notice that what helps the most for advocates is to have an ally in the state house or in whatever government they're lobbying. And I, I feel that most people don't really understand uh, all the power that the state does have and that For most of us, it is the house that we pay the least attention to. Uh, So 
after I started really paying attention to what happens in state government, I started to really become aware of the preferences that seem to be given to corporations when it comes to lawmaking. Mm-hmm. In my district, I've, I've witnessed real estate companies who essentially get to call the shots when it comes to planning our community. Uh, and I've been through two rezonings in this neighborhood and I've watched developers threaten to withhold affordable housing, make community beg for park space and other benefits. And then uh, a community then has to fight for years to get many of the benefits promised in the rezoning agreements. There's, um, and there's billions of dollars of profit being made off of our neighborhood assets. And this mm-hmm. has such a damaging effect on the community fabric. Uh, additionally, energy corporations like Con Ed and National Grid call the shots when it comes to how we get our electricity, what we're paying for it. Uh, even when there's other options that are more environmentally friendly and cost effective, and uh, they have a total monopoly when there is the possibility. And we have, I think, we're starting to get the public will for, for public power and for a, a government owned like power system and power owned by the people. Uh, And then I also have watched polluters fight against enforcement and government agencies don't have the teeth to push back and really make things equitable and fair. New York State is one of the states that has some of the worst environmental um, regulations, especially when it comes to water. We are not even living up to the most recent Clean Water Act standards. And all of this is um, really something that I think we need an advocate for not just in terms of lawmaking, but in terms of bringing people in. So I'm a teacher. I come from uh, educational um, an education career, and I I want to to broaden who is positively impacted by the government and really shift who holds the power. Uh, my district is 80% renter, and yet we haven't gotten any kind of support with COVID-19 and with Mm -hmm. the mass unemployment that's happening. Yeah. I just see there's so many opportunities um, to really support the average working person and they're not being taken. So that's why I'm running. Amazing. So that was definitely something I wanted to talk to you about today, not just personal experience with COVID-19 and the whole pandemic quarantine situation, but the political side of it. Like how is it affecting not just your campaign, but your view of our local and state government and how, and, you know, we can talk national too. I don't know if we want to get into that, but um, just the response and what you wish you were seeing versus what you're actually seeing. Well, I think this whole experience has highlighted the limited view that uh, the average person gets of the state government. Now, our state is on a much bigger stage with Cuomo giving these press conferences and he's become, you know, this hero in the, the national conversation around this pandemic. But meanwhile, his budget, which he is, he's really created a system to write the budget that really limits the power of the representatives and really gives him the most power in, in creating the budget. The budget's cutting Medicaid. It's it's cutting um, all sorts of all sorts of supports that are supposed to be there for the hospitals and for the workers. It is it is not giving us rent relief. It's not giving us any of the relief that we're asking for. And one of the reasons why is because he's refusing to tax 
the billionaires and millionaires that really have a pretty strong presence in this state. We are a state that has a pretty large wealthy community and we can tax them in a way that isn't going to make them lose their wealth, uh, but would actually give us enough money to create a budget that worked for everyone and supported everyone in the way that they needed. But that is so much less talked about than this public performance of being the hero. I think it's really important to note that all of these problems that we're having during this COVID-19 situation with the hospitals, they existed before. Our public hospitals have always been underfunded. They've always had bad outcomes for um, poor people, for, for people who are not wealthy and who don't have private insurance. So all of this is really highlighting our weaknesses as a state, if you know what to watch. But the reality is that the system is so complicated that it is hard to keep an eye on it. You know, we've been, my team has been, you know, tearing apart trying to figure out what happened during the budget vote last night, you know, but you have to, you have to comb through with a fine tooth comb, like the government website to even get any details on what was going on. People don't really openly talk about it. I want elected officials who are transparent and who explain what they're voting and why they're voting in a certain way and have open dialogue. And I think that that's what makes a strong citizenry. So I'm really seeing that we've been disempowered from the get-go in our state government, and this is really amplifying all of that. So it's, it's a little distressing to see the, the Cuomo fandom um, because I really think that, you know, while, while he is certainly doing a more coherent job than 45, we are still missing so much of what we need, and that is historic. That is something that our state set up, you know, and, and we need to be really, really tearing at the seams of this and thinking about a way that we can construct a state that actually has healthcare, that can support healthcare workers, that can support people who are frontline workers who get sick, people who don't have health insurance because they've just become unemployed or have never been able to afford health insurance because the kind of work they do is not supported by that kind of economy. Uh, so yeah, so I think this is really making it very clear, the problems in our state government. But I think that we need louder voices amplifying that uh, because we, we are a complicated system and a lot of people don't know which representative they're even supposed to be calling when they have a problem and they feel helpless. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on that note too, I think I heard with your interview with Lisa Levy, I was surprised to learn um, how many years in office has your opponent been active politically in his current office? My, uh, my opponent has been in office for, this is his 48th year in office. That's insane. Yeah, we've <laughs> been as a representative in this office. You know, I know a lot of politicians to different offices. They go to different, you know, they, they do some years in assembly. They do some years in Senate. They do some years in the city. They do some years in the federal government. This is all just in the assembly. And, and in addition to that, um, before he held this office, his father and his grandfather held state representative offices. So this is like a family legacy for him. And I really respect 
a devotion to public service. And I, I even really like him as a person. Um, but I just think that it's important to be having fresh perspectives. It's important to be having different experiences. It's important to be building community and power in the community. And I just don't see a situation where you're holding an office for half of a century being one that is nurturing the develop of development of a civic life in your community. And, and I think that's really problematic. That's a very magnanimous way of framing that, actually. I really appreciate that. Uh, 48 years is just a wild number of years to really comprehend. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but also a very nice way of talking about your opponent, too. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so on that note as well, kind of like shifting to look at you and your campaign, you have talked previously, and I'm hoping you can talk more about it here as well, about the complications that come with being a working class person running for office and why we don't see that more often and why it's hard essentially to do that. Yeah, you know, I um. When I first came into advocacy, I had no interest in running for office, but really it was this frustration that I experienced with a number of bills that I really felt like we had the public will and the political will, I thought, to pass, um, just not being supported. And I just, I started really thinking about um, what it would look like to run for a state office. And I, I kept chickening out of it because I had, I, I, you know, there's no matching funds. Well, first of all, when you decide to run for office, uh, it's really been set up for people of some means to do it and not really anybody else because you have to be able to raise funds to get the awareness out. So, you know, it helps to hire a staff. It helps to be able to send mail or to buy advertising, even to just get the supplies that you need to get the word out about your candidacy. So even if you didn't want to do any advertising, you need to have like postcards with your face on it that remind people to vote. You need to be able to rent a space to have a meeting or something like that. And um, and in city elections, there's something called matching funds. So if you get a certain number of donors from your community, uh, you will unlock this thing that the city does, which is every dollar, uh, that you raise is matched eight times, um, by the city. So you end up having a lot more money to work with, uh, as a candidate. Now that was proposed uh, and some state legislature, but you know, the city and the state are run very differently. The city has term limits, you can only be in office for eight years, unless you were in office when Bloomberg was in office because he got himself a third term. So those people had three terms. Um, but in the state, there's no, there's no term limit. So a lot of the structure really feels like it's been built to protect the people who have been put into that situation. And, um, so we're talking about the, the cost of running the campaign, but what I was really thinking about and what I started to get it really nervous about is the cost of living as a human being in New York City and not working. So, so many of us are rent burdened and are paying at least 30% of our income. That's what you're supposed to pay, 30% of your income in rent. But so many of us pay more than that 
and might be paying even 50 or 60% of our income in rent. And, you know, the longer you have kind of working class jobs, the harder it can be um, to have the wealth in your savings uh, to do that. I worked for many years in um, museums, which isn't often thought of as a working class job, but the average pay of working in a museum, you're usually not offered more than part-time work. Um, you're usually earning about $18,000 a year. So I was working, when I was in museums, I was working at least six days a week, multiple jobs, and I was just getting by and didn't have that much to put in the bank. Um, so I didn't have a robust savings account. Um, I had a medical, I broke my wrist in 2015 and that totally wiped out all my money because I also didn't have good health insurance. Um, still paying off credit cards from that injury. Uh, so, you know, I was really considering it and I kept saying to people like, how am I going to do this? I don't come from a wealthy family. I don't have any kind of trust fund or anything like that. Like so many people who run for office, it's not talked about, but so many people who run for office either are wealthy themselves or come from a family of wealth. So even if they might be working as a bartender or something, you know, they might have a trust fund that they're living off of. So, you know, it took me a long time to decide to do this. And what I decided I would do is I would keep working my full-time job, which was at an education nonprofit, and hopefully raise enough money to hire someone so that while I was earning the, the money that I needed to pay my rent, um, that person could be working on the campaign, and then we would come together and I would do like a double shift. So I've been doing a double shift on this and a full-time job since September. Uh, and then because of COVID-19, you know, most people who are working at nonprofits, especially in education, um, they lost their work because the schools closed. So I was laid off two weeks ago. And, you know, in a way, it's been ironic because I had been working for two years to try to save enough money so that sometime I could quit my day job and focus on the campaign. But I, did, I decided in February that there was no way that I was going to ever have like a, a comfortable enough amount of money with the amount I was able to put away um, to, to do that. So it's almost as if, you know, the world came together and said, well, guess what? Now you're focusing on the campaign uh, because I just, I, you know, I just lost my job. So now I'm, I'm trying to get on unemployment like the rest of us. And uh, I think that's really important because there's a lot of things in the system that are hard uh, to overcome as a working person. And you just don't know that if you haven't done it, you know, there's just no way you can know. Yeah, we talk on the show, you know, a bunch about why, you know, we see politicians making these decisions and we're just like, why, why is this person deciding this? And then it's like, if they have no experience and they have no understanding of what it's like to have to, you know, scrape by and to pay 60% of your check on rent and things like that, they don't, they really just don't understand what that actually feels like and how to make decisions based on that. 
So host Emily Scott from the future jumping in here to let you know that Emily Gallagher had a longer, super passionate answer here. But unfortunately, that part of the audio was just really shitty quality because we had to do the interview remotely because of social distancing safety requirements. Now back to Emily Gallagher. If I'm a homeowner, I probably think everybody's a homeowner. But the reality is that most people here do not own their own homes. And and it's really just important to have a real perspective on on what's going on in the community. Definitely. Um, I hope to see more people like you that have a more working class background running for office and that can really relate more to the majority of their constituents. I think it would make for a hopefully more fair, but also much more engaging political system. Host Emily Scott here from the future again. Um, At this point, I asked Emily Gallagher to talk a little bit about her platform on criminal justice, which she emphasizes on her website as one of her main issues. But unfortunately, again, the whims of remote interview technology made a lot of the audio really crappy. I edited what decent quality audio I can grab to highlight some of her best points, which is what you're about to hear. So we need to find ways to support fund and replicate um, programs that happen in other states to put highly trained mental health care professionals um, out in the world to be serving people. And one way that we're criminalizing poverty is, you know, with with the investment of the fair the fair beating um, in the MTA, we need to actually be focusing on why is it that there are so many people who can't afford to ride on the MTA? Why is it that so much of our workforce doesn't have a way to get to work that is affordable to them? That's where we should put in our money, not in putting tickets or putting people in you know, jail um, because they, they can't pay the fare. The awesome. other thing that I'm really, really concerned about is... Um, the way that we deal with with drug use, uh, I I lost a very close friend of mine to opioid addiction. I've known many others who have family members who have the same patient. There are other cities that have um, support networks for um, people who are using opioids, who are using um, meth. You know, drug. Drugs are used in our society, and we need to be making it safer for people um, and also help people move away from the the carceral state. So, you know, I'm really disappointed that they didn't legalize marijuana. I don't understand why that didn't happen this year. We've been talking about it for years. It seemed that we really had the political will to it. I don't know what happened here. What I've heard is that, you know, there, there, there was a reticence to invest the money into communities of color that have been damaged by the drug war. Uh, and that is really disturbing to me. We should be thinking about how this can be a support for everyone and not about um, good and bad. So that's just a little taste of what I want to see happen um, in criminal justice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emily. It has been an absolute pleasure um, talking with you today. And thank you for giving us your time. Um, So if someone listening right now wants to get involved with your campaign or wants to learn more about you, how can they do that? Uh, They can go um, to emilyforassembly.com. 
Emily from the future here one more time to say that is the uh, the website is emily4assembly.com in case you couldn't hear that audio clearly. Um, the most critical thing that we need right now is donations. We had about six fundraisers that were canceled because of COVID-19. And as I explained earlier, um, my grassroots fundraising is like the most critical component that allows us to keep going forward. Uh, we also have a very robust team of volunteers who are super passionate. We've been finding creative ways to engage with people that is not face-to-face, -face, uh, which, you know, has been really invigorating, but also disappointing because we're really good at the face-to-face -face stuff. <laughs> um, but they can follow me on social media at M4, the number four, Assembly. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and on Facebook, and we would love to have more volunteers as well so and just sharing the word and and letting people know if they live in greenpoint williamsburg or clinton hill this year for the first time in so many decades you actually get to vote for one of two people instead of for one person or no one <laughs> awesome awesome so, thank you, you thank you so much emily um all right have a good one Thanks so much. And here's Teresa Robinson to introduce our first musical break. Thank you so much for that incredible interview, Emily. Let's take a break with some music before we jump into some more stories. Our first selection today is the 1972 throwback, Use Me, by legendary R&B singer and songwriter Bill Withers. He passed away at the age of 81 this week in Los Angeles. So rest in peace to the ancestors. Thank you so much for your incredible contribution. We'll be right back. My friends feel as they're appointed duty. They keep trying to tell me he Just keep on using me 
till you use me up Until you use me up This is Jasmine Smith for Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm recording this on a Friday afternoon in my apartment with my cat, Dre. Um, So the story that I wanted to talk to you all about comes from Charles Blow, who's an opinion writer for the New York Times. And this past week, he wrote an op-ed called the racial time bomb in the COVID-19 crisis. So Charles wrote in this piece about getting the news that a young member of his fraternity had passed away after contracting COVID-19. The man who died was in his 30s. He was a chef in Detroit. He was also a diabetic. And there were two other young black men with diabetes from the same fraternity who also passed away in New Orleans this past week. A digital magazine named Undark reported that the COVID-19 virus is probably going to be the most devastating in the South because of poor health, curbed healthcare access, and skepticism of government. And that's a quote directly from the magazine. So unfortunately, like I've been seeing a lot of people online making really flippant remarks about who the virus will kill and insinuating that people dying in the South doesn't really matter or that people dying in the South have it coming to them for not taking the virus seriously. So there's a lot of um, conflating people not following certain rules because they just don't care with saying like everyone who is infected is infected for that reason or because that's how they're thinking. So not only is that unethical and it's cruel just on the face of it, it also ignores the fact that many in the South are not in agreement with a lot of decisions their state and local governments are making, and also that the majority of the Black population in this country is concentrated in the Southern states. 
So we already know that there's racial disparity when it comes to access to health care between white and black people. And that's only going to be exacerbated in times of a crisis. So even well-meaning healthcare practitioners, they have implicit biases that shape who they decide to test, who they decide to treat, and who they decide to let go in favor of potentially saving someone else. And these biases obviously also include racial bias. If we look at Italy and the people who have died so far of COVID, According to Bloomberg, almost half of the victims suffered from at least three prior illnesses, and about a fourth had either one or two previous conditions. More than 75% had high blood pressure, about 35% had diabetes, and a third suffered from heart disease. According to the CDC, like bringing it back to the States, High blood pressure is most common in non-Hispanic Black adults at 54%, and Black people have the highest death rate from heart disease. The risk of diabetes is also 77% higher among African Americans than among non-Hispanic white Americans. The rate of diagnosis of diabetes in non-Hispanic Black people is 18.7% compared to 7.1%. In addition, African Americans with diabetes were 1.5 times more likely to be hospitalized and 2.3 times more likely to die from diabetes than non-Hispanic whites. In addition to that, many Southern states have refused to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, and there's already a rural hospital crisis happening in this country all over, but that crisis is compounded in the South where rural areas have higher poverty rates, higher mortality rates, and lower life expectancies than other rural regions of the country. And that's just, you know, not during a pandemic. So we know that that's only going to be more of an issue like as the disease reaches its peak in the U.S. I really would recommend um, looking up and reading Charles Blow's entire piece on the New York Times website. Uh, because he also draws important comparisons between the current COVID-19 pandemic and the response to it and the HIV epidemic that's still disproportionately impacting Black people in the U.S. But um, before I end my clip, there's another color divide that's impacting who is hit hardest by the pandemic. So today is my grandmother's 81st birthday. I got on a video call with her and some of my family members before recording this. But at one point in the call, my father had to leave to go to work. He's working what's considered an essential job, so he still has to be physically present at least some of the week. My aunt, who's with my grandmother, has a high-risk job. My other aunt works in healthcare. On my mother's side, two of my brothers are still going to work every day, and so are two of my mother's sisters, and they also work in high-risk public-facing jobs. Multiple people on both sides of my family are immunocompromised in one way or another. So I want people to keep that in mind. Like if you look at some of the pictures that people are taking of subway commuters crowding on platforms and on trains to try to shame them for not flattening the curve, like you'll notice that a lot of those faces are black and brown. 
So black people and immigrants and brown other non-white communities like we're overrepresented in a lot of service and care industry jobs that can't really be done from home. So that includes like mail carriers, food delivery workers, nurses, nurses aides, grocery clerks and so on. Many jobs on that list are generally underpaid and underappreciated, but we see now that their positions were all depending on to survive. So Charles mentions at the end of his piece that the idea that we're all in this together is true, but only up to a certain extent. So while we know that germs and viruses don't discriminate, human beings still do, and that's obvious in the racial and class divisions that go on to determine which communities are hardest hit by an illness, including the one that we're dealing with right now. So I'd like to thank you for listening and ask you to please keep an eye on our Facebook page for information on how to support those most in need during this crisis. Uh, Thanks a lot for tuning in. Stay safe, everyone, and enjoy listening to the rest of the show. Bye. Hello, hello. My name is Matthew Schneeman, one of your many co-hosts for Objection to the Rule. I I miss you, fellow co-hosts. So we we couldn't meet up in person or even uh, virtually for this week's episode. I'm doing a local story for my contribution today. It is a piece published by Gothamist.com, and I believe the journalist uh, works for WNYC. It's all about uh, the overcrowded conditions that many people live in so that the refrain, stay home, is not actually as helpful as it is for affluent people that get to quarantine themselves in a nice cocoon of Netflix and everything. So stay home is what everyone is telling everyone. But home, for many of us, can be more crowded than work. Class issues keep popping up on every step of the corona ladder on New York's 100,000 confirmed of New York's 100,000 confirmed cases 16,000 of them alone are just in Queens so that's 16,000 in in Queens compared to 100,000 in all of the state of New York so that's that's a high concentration in a breakdown of New York City's corona cases Manhattan pales in comparison to Brooklyn and the Bronx and Queen in terms of having uh, people having the disease or the virus those pictures of people riding in packed subways in the middle of a pandemic mostly are commuters heading into town to work for the people that get to stay home well, yeah, I mean, that's the general impression. I don't actually have numbers behind that, but pretty sure people riding trains right now aren't doing it uh, just because they're not taking this seriously. But, you know, we have to go to work. But the question now is, how do you social distance if your home ain't got no distance? <laughs> Quote, according to a 2015 report by City Comptroller Scott Stringer, around 1.5 million New Yorkers or 17% of the city's population live in officially crowded conditions. Crowded is defined as a home where there are more people than rooms, including kitchen, end quote. Are there other options? Are people just supposed to hope that they don't get the people that they live with sick? 
I kind of thought that's all you could do. <laughs> One man who was profiled in the article on Gothamist is sick and his wife and two daughters just stay in the living room all day while he hangs out in the bedroom all day. But, quote, all four of them, however, have to share the single have to share the single bathroom. And when I use the bathroom for one minute, he says, I have to clean the bathroom for 10 minutes, end quote. Is there another option? Well, maybe. Quote, in addition to healthcare workers, we're working to make hotel rooms available to individuals who are symptomatic and require isolation that may not require intense medical care, wrote Avery Conan, a spokesperson for Mayor Bill de Blasio, end quote. So hotel rooms, well, that would be incredibly expensive, but also could be considered help to the struggling hotel industry. We are all losing money. We all know that. Mike Camber, who is a journalist, did a piece that The New Yorker published. It's actually a video, and I have a couple excerpts from that, well, the audio of it. And it's a piece on public housing, specifically in the Bronx, where he lives, and how people are adapting to the coronavirus. As the coronavirus tears across New York, the New York City Housing Authority, better known as NYCHA, has done almost no outreach about the pandemic, according to residents I spoke to. Over the past weeks, I found many residents with almost no information about the dangerous flu. My name is Mike Camber. I live in this neighborhood and my family members live in these projects. Volunteers from the Bronx Documentary Center put up flyers in NYCHA lobbies and around the neighborhood to counter the lack of information. I don't know. I mean, we sent uh, notices and posters to each property. Okay. Actually, we sent uh, pretty much the same, uh, I can't remember, it's Department of Health notice. Uh, we sent that to the management offices okay. and asked them to post uh, as many as they had in common areas and the management office. Most of the few notices that we found were designed to protect NYCHA management, but gave no information for tenants to protect themselves. There is no hand sanitizer here in these crowded lobbies, no alcohol wipes, and no apparent plan for help. If the coronavirus takes hold here, it will be like a bomb going off. Now, while the coronavirus obviously is a novel uh, virus, a, a new thing, underfunding public housing is not. And Mike interviewed someone from NYCHA who uh, has access or who understands why they don't have enough money to to appropriately fix the elevators to lessen the overcrowded conditions. I don't have an elevator number in front of me, but it's in the billions. Um, Just to fix and- it. Yeah, for NYCHA, one of the things that is so extraordinary is, you know, the governor in the past two fiscal years, well, they've, the state's appropriated $450 million. Right. And, but that's against maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, billions of dollars in need. Sure. No one is kicking it, but you'll get a portion of elevators and a portion right. of uh, boilers out of that. You're going to be, you're going to be behind. There's just no, no other, no way around it. This group of housing projects cuts a wide swath up the middle of the South Bronx. 
This is the poorest urban congressional district in the United States. Tens of thousands of people are packed together in these dilapidated buildings. Some of the half million New Yorkers who live in New York City Housing Authority buildings. Throughout this whole crisis, the thing that I've been saying and many other people have been saying is it's, it's, it's magnifying problems that already existed, right? And a lot of the people that live in public housing are vulnerable. Uh, Mike has a part in his uh, reporting that addresses ex exactly why these people are vulnerable, not just because they live in crowded conditions with broken elevators so people have to jam together, but also other uh, disabilities and health conditions. Many here have no internet service and little access to reliable information. So people repeat rumors or snippets of information. And you get your information from Facebook? Facebook. The little research I do from um, Safari. To make matters worse, residents have some of the worst health indicators in the country. Diabetes, asthma, and heart disease. Nearby, Lincoln Hospital is already short of ventilators. Many, especially the young, have not heard about Governor Cuomo's request for social distancing and are congregating in groups. Well, do you think people know how to protect themselves? No. Not properly. Can't protect their property if not given the information to take care of. In the midst of a calamity, New York's poorest residents are on their own. That piece was published in The New Yorker by Mike Camber. The article I referenced earlier was in Gothamist.com. I hope everyone is doing okay. And if you have lost your job, I hope that you have supports to help weather this storm. And if you're just stressed out, um, because everyone knows someone <laughs> who's particularly vulnerable to this. And I, I wish you all luck in regards to that. And also, nobody is immortal. So, you know, that's all I got. Let's take another musical break. This is Erica Badu with Drama.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Actually pre-recorded on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's jump right into this final world news story. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Weck coming to you live from New Jersey for your global news segment today. I'm sad to be gone from Brooklyn for the time being, but I'm happy we're keeping up with Objection to the Rule since news is more important than ever right now. And so my reporting today is actually about the news. While China, Russia, and North Korea have been scrutinized for the information they've been releasing about COVID-19, I thought it might be interesting to look at a different part of the world and look at press in India. While in the U.S., fake news is now a household phrase, other countries are facing a darker reality when it comes to freedom of the press. In India, freedom is far out of reach for advertisers and news channels right now. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has attempted to control the press more than any leader of the country has done before. On March 6th, Media One was shut down by the government for a 48-hour period in the middle of a segment due to the station's coverage of mob attacks on Muslims in New Delhi in February. This decision came after the government decided that the channel presented the story in a way that seemed seemed critical toward Delhi police and RSS. Journalists feel that Prime Minister Modi has utilized his hold on the media to paint himself as the nation's selfless savior, quote. Certain news executives are being persuaded to follow this agenda, most recently with publishing inspiring and positive news stories about the Indian government's response to COVID-19. India's constitution, like ours, is meant to protect freedom of speech, but resentment from the media and public is mounting as millions of migrant laborers are stranded, hungry, or becoming sick from the virus. And the government, at the same time, continues to push an agenda aimed at protecting the prime minister and replacing fact with positive sentiment. Obviously, this sounds a little bit like Trump. Modi's administration has been working on cutting thousands of independent media outlets that have spoken out against the prime minister. They have also called out huge organizations such as NDTV as unpatriotic, firing hundreds of journalists, and since then, NDTV has shifted towards a nationalist perspective. Even journalists in smaller towns in India are being attacked by the government. The New York Times cited the arrest of Pawan Kumar Jaswal, a part-time journalist who also ran a tiny mobile phone shop who broke a story revealing how poor children in a school near Varanasi, Mr. Modi's parliamentary constituency, were being fed flatbread and salt for lunch, a clear violation of government nutrition rules. As the entire world is now relying on global cooperation of leaders for information on the pandemic, it's alarming to me that such censorship is taking place and also means that the media has a more important job than ever. As we all try to do our part in stopping the spread of the virus, There is only so much individuals can do, especially without the proper information. We'll keep you updated on the situation in India and follow up with other countries that have been making an effort to conceal information from the public and sway popular opinion, i.e. Russia, North Korea, of course, etc. The sources for this segment were found on the Committee to Protect Journalists.org, the New York Times, and Narendra Modi's website, narendramodi.in. See you next time, guys. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or anywhere you can find iTunes podcast. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Everybody stay healthy, stay indoors, stay positive. And we're going to play you out with some music. This is Carajuice by Salam Remy.
See you next week.